Today we're turning to Acts and chapter 9. And we'll consider the Damascus Road. Starting at verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard much about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who had called on his name, on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot came to to be known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down from an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace 
being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. We first mentioned Paul two weeks ago and how he was motivated by zeal for the Lord and for his law. And this zeal had provoked him to carry out acts of violence against the church. He had arrested many. He'd cast his vote. Um, welcome. Come in. Sit down. I've only just started. <laughs> he had arrested many and cast his vote against others who had subsequently been put to death. Paul could do nothing to eradicate this heretical Jesus sect, but kept trying to to arrest them and to tear them up. In this section, we encounter him having been to the chief priests to gain letters of authorization, traveling to Damascus to try and destroy the burgeoning church there. There are essentially three locations in this piece of the narrative. The road to Damascus, Damascus itself, and Jerusalem. We'll also look at each of these scenes in turn. However, there are two references. They also refer to two other locations that we'll, we'll consider as we proceed. So the action begins with a meanwhile or a now. Meanwhile? Meanwhile what? Clearly these events are taking place while Philip was evangelizing in Samaria. And at the same time, Paul was, was trying to tear up the church. We encounter Paul in an angry mood. As he was travel, traveling along, it says... He can't stop breathing out murderous threats, or as the King James Version says, threatenings and slaughters. And he's bouncing along on his donkey. You can see steam coming out of his ears. And the closer he gets to Damascus, the more angry he's becoming. And he can't stop mumbling his intentions on arriving in Damascus. And the distance from Jerusalem to Damascus is about 150 miles. So it was a few days. And the further he went, the angrier he was getting. And his intention is to arrest all the Christians he can find and lead them back. And it says specifically to lead them back bound, back to Jerusalem to face trial. Why is that significant? Because later in Acts 20.22, Paul describes himself as on his way back to Jerusalem bound but bound in spirit. And just as he took those who were bound back, so he was himself bound by the Spirit of God to return to Jerusalem later on. Interesting contrast. So nearly at the end of his journey, on his approach into Damascus, he can see the walls, he can see the gates, and Paul suddenly finds himself surrounded by a bright light. In Acts 22.6, we're told that this event happened at noon. Noon, in a hot country, The sun is very bright. So how bright was this light to be shining around him and be seen by everybody? This was a significantly brighter light than the noonday sun. A noonday sun. And the shock of this sudden event caused Paul to fall off his donkey. And at this point, we could draw a comparison with Stephen's vision of the risen Lord in Acts 7.56. And Paul's vision of the risen risen Lord here, we can compare them. But we could also take note of how the various visions from Acts form such an important part of the unfolding unfolding narrative. Stephen's vision, which brought about his stoning. Paul's vision, which brought about his conversion. 
Ananias' vision, which revealed to Paul his calling. Peter's later vision, which opened up the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's vision of the Macedonian man, which brought the gospel into Europe. Paul's reassuring vision, which caused him to have an extended stay in Corinth. And Paul's vision amongst the, the storm, which confirmed that the ship and its passengers would be saved in the shipwreck. Throughout the gospel, the Acts narrative, visions form an important part of that unfolding narrative and bring direction and shift all the way along. God intervenes to make sure this church develops and grows. And this is another significant one of those visions where Paul gets this vision in the middle of the day of Jesus, the risen Lord. Notice how Jesus identifies the persecution of the church as being personal to him. Why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Whenever Jesus' church is persecuted, it's a personal attack on our saviour. In Acts 26.14, Paul relates that Jesus went on to say, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? pointy stick. It's a pointy stick that you use to guide an animal. And Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the pointy stick. Jesus is telling Paul that God wants him to go in a certain way in his zeal, but he's determined to go in the opposite way. And this reveals a lot about Jesus' intervention at this point. Paul had heard Stephen's testimony and something from within him knows that Stephen was authentic in his, in his affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. Perhaps the truth of Stephen's arguments had convicted him. And instead of accepting them, he was fighting against them because they went against so much of his preconceived beliefs. Sometimes God challenges our thinking. He may bring conviction of sin. He may just cause us to see things from a fresh angle. And this can be a painful process. It may result in much heart-searching, difficulty, as we reassess our position and perhaps make changes. Despite it being difficult, it's important that we remain open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in this respect, because it's for our good. And ultimately, God wants to imprint the image of Jesus further into our souls. Paul's reaction had been to fight, to fight against what God was doing with him, to fight those he perceived as to be the cause of his discomfort. But Jesus intervened. And turned him around 180 degrees. Notice Paul's immediate response to Jesus. Who are you, Lord? That Lord word Lord was reserved for God himself. And so he knows it's a divine revelation that he's receiving. And so in it, we also see the divinity of Jesus revealed once more. Jesus further told Paul, get up and go into the city and wait for instructions. What about the men who were traveling with Paul? Well, we're told they were speechless. They didn't really know what was going on. We're told in Acts 26, 14 that they fell to the ground also. They saw the bright light. They heard the voice. But it was only Paul who saw Jesus. I wonder what they made of it all. It seems that it was only Paul who was blinded by the light as it was these companions who led him into the city. Unless it's the blind leading the blind. Perhaps after Paul's conversion, they became disciples of Jesus as well. 
Or perhaps they simply returned to Jerusalem a bit befuddled. Question we need to ask in response to these events is, is it fair that God so dramatically intervened to save Paul, but doesn't do it with others? And it's not an easy one to answer. As I've thought about this, I've come to the conclusion that Paul's heart ultimately was to serve God passionately, but that he went about it in all the wrong way. God's grace worked to channel that zeal ultimately for his glory. Paul was absolutely passionate to serve God to the best of his abilities. And he thought destroying the church was serving God. And God just needed to adjust his vision. And that's why he intervened. God's grace worked to channel that zeal for his glory. And it wasn't that Paul was in rebellion or choosing to do his own thing. It was that he believed he was totally serving God and so needed an intervention to adjust it. Also, we have the fact that there was nobody else qualified in the world of the day to understand, to define, and to carry the gospel message into the world, and especially to the Gentiles. It took a Paul to work out the full implications of the cross and the resurrection, and their significance for Jew and Gentile alike. There was nobody else to whom God could entrust this great work that has shaped belief and practice for the last 2,000 years. I would go as far as to say, no Paul, no church. Or at least not the church as we have it today. This Paul was vital to the strategic plans of God to bring salvation to this world. Hence why this is such a dramatic event and why God intervened to bring him to faith. So Paul gets up. Can't see a thing, staggering around, led into, into Damascus. And then he goes on a three-day fast. And during this time, he has a further vision in which he sees Ananias coming to him and laying hands on him to receive his sight. And this is be- even before the Lord has been to visit Ananias to tell him what to do. And then we cut to the house of Ananias and his vision of the Lord. And he receives a direct instruction from the Lord about what to do, including giving him Paul's address. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all the instruction from the Lord was so full and clear? Go here, to this address, to this person. (laughs) Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Not very often. But despite this clarity, and the fact that the Lord has given him this instruction, Ananias is not, not surprisingly a little reluctant to do as he's told. His first response is, Lord, have you heard what this man's been doing? As if the Lord didn't know all about Paul. And the Lord's response to Ananias brings further clarity. It's a revelation of the two parts of Paul's destiny. On the one hand, he would bring the gospel to kings, Gentiles and Jews everywhere. On the other, he would suffer greatly in the process. And those were the two parts of Paul's destiny. And we see something of this extended call related by Paul in his defense before Agrippa in Acts 26. There Jesus says, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. 
and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by me. And we don't know if if this that Paul relates later on was received direct from Jesus to Paul and was part of, of the full version of Revelation to Ananias. However, Jesus makes the mission of Paul clear to him with all its implications. So Ananias receives the vision of what to do. And he goes straight to street, straight to straight street to sort out Saul. Something like that. He immediately ministered to Paul by baptizing him, praying for him, for his sight to be restored. And we see these fish-like scales falling from Paul's eyes. His spiritual sight is restored. And his vision, vision previously obscured by his own prejudice, was suddenly made clear. And he regained his strength, we're told. And Paul's conversion came with a calling. God made clear to him from the outset the pattern of his life from this point forward. In the same way, when we come to faith, we enter into God's destiny for us. Each one of us has a calling. Nobody is excluded. Everybody has a calling from God. And that's part of your coming to faith. If you've not discovered your calling yet, I suggest you seek God until he makes greater revelation. Because everybody has a destiny in God. We all have purpose. We all have usefulness. We all have tasks that he's assigned to us. We all have things that we are called to do. And Paul's is made very clear, but each one of us also has a destiny to fulfill. We each have a part to play in God's plans, and God wants to make that known to us. Not everyone is called to lead a church, to be a traveling evangelist or a mighty prophet. However, everyone is called to do something. We all have a contribution to make to the body of Christ and to the world. And the onus is on each one of us to find out what that calling is and to function in it. It may be to be the best administrator, musician, health worker, business person we can be so that we can influence in the workplace. And that doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play in the church as well. But all of us need to find out our calling and carry it out to the best of our abilities. And that's what the parable of the talents is all about. Half-heartedness and complacency don't cut it in the kingdom of God. Paul was one who grabbed hold of his destiny with both hands. He says immediately he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He didn't wait for, for a further confirmation. He got on and did what he was called to do. The poacher became the gamekeeper. And not surprisingly, everyone was astonished. The more Paul spoke about Jesus, the bolder he became. And we're told in verse 22, he baffled the Jews with whom he argued, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This Pharisee, educated in the best university in Jerusalem, under the greatest teacher of the law, Gamaliel, must have been a formidable opponent for the members of the synagogue in Damascus even though he was still working out the implications of the revelation Jesus had, of Jesus that he had received. Now, between verse 22 and 23, we have another incident 
which Paul only tells us about in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17. At that point in the narrative, Paul left Damascus for a period and went into Arabia. That doesn't mean he traveled down to the area we know today as Arabia. Now that term, in those days, the term Arabia was used as the Nabataean region, which stretched from just outside Damascus in a southerly region. So he went out into the desert, basically. And according to most commentators, it was at this time Paul spent time with the Lord, rethinking his theology. Imagine everything he'd ever known, ever taught, or been taught, or believed he had to rethink in the light of this new revelation that Jesus is the Messiah reconstructing his whole framework of belief. When we come to faith, we should go through no lesser change in our thinking. It's not a matter of adding a few new beliefs or values to our existing scheme of thinking. It's that everything in our life, our values, our attitudes, our beliefs, our behaviors, must change, must now line up with the fact that Jesus is Lord. Nothing remains the same. Everything changes. You can't import worldly thinking into the kingdom of God. Everything has to change. For too long, people have come to faith as a one-off transaction that guarantees them a place in heaven. But salvation is not about heaven. It's about transformation. Eternal life begins now as God, through his Holy Spirit, takes us and shapes us into the image of his Son. It's like an artist taking a painting that's been spoiled and producing from it an image that's perfect. Or like a potter who takes a clay pot that's been spoiled on the wheel and reshapes it into something beautiful and useful. We're not what we were before. And we must engage with God to become all that we can be. Everything must change. By the time we get to verse 25... After Paul had been three years in Damascus, he has his own disciples. And we hear about the first of many plots against his life. The Jews were so intimidated by his arguments that the only way they could stop him was to try and kill him. But Paul's followers plot a daring escape plan and lower him down the outside of the city wall in a basket. And so Paul, having spent these three years in Damascus, challenging and provoking, and with them almost taking his life, or trying to take his life, plotting to take his life, Paul returns to Jerusalem. And not surprisingly, when he turns up at Jerusalem, the church wants nothing more to do, or nothing to do with him. Their last interactions with him had been involved him knocking on their doors, dragging off their loved ones into prison. They suspected a cunning plan on his part to carry on his persecutions. The world has a view of people that they cannot change. In my experience, there's little or no grace in the world. In the church, it should be different. That's not to say that we shouldn't have appropriate safeguards in place, and it's up to leaders to exercise discernment to ensure that those who come amongst us are genuine. However, none of us wants our past sins held against us. There must be room in the church for grace and recognition that we're all on a journey. The church needs to be a refuge for repentant sinners, not a place of judgment.
And the church also needs people like Barnabas. He was willing to take a chance on Paul. And as a result, Paul came into full fellowship with the apostles. And this generosity of spirit is something that we see consistently in Barnabas. Whether that's selling his property and giving it to the disciples, as we saw in chapter 5. Or giving John Mark another chance after he's let Paul and him down in chapter 15. It's not always easy to trust people. Especially if they've led us down in the past. And this is not a matter of saying that what they did doesn't matter. However, just as God has been gracious to us, so we should be gracious to one another and to others. It's why Jesus told Peter that he needed to forgive his brother 70 times 7. Later on, we'll see that Paul was reconciled with John Mark and did eventually give him a second chance, but it took Paul a bit longer to work it through. And we all need second chances on occasions. In verse 39, we see the second plot to kill Paul. Two plots to kill Paul in less than nine verses. He was a man who stirred up um, difference, wasn't he? Paul always seemed to divide the crowd because his message is clear and uncompromising. And so he intimidated people. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 34, I do not think I come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The gospel will always divide as it lays down a choice for its hearers. And in response to this plot, the believers in Jerusalem bundle Paul off. I just wonder if they didn't want any more trouble in Jerusalem. They'd had enough. They wanted peace. Paul, however, goes back to Tarsus. The result is that the church in Jerusalem continues to grow. But Paul was left out in the wilderness. And we understand from, from piecing the scriptures together, he was in Tarsus for about 14 years before the words spoken over him could be fulfilled. He knew who he was, he knew his calling, and yet there he was in the wilderness. From our perspective, isn't that a waste? Perhaps you've had words over you concerning things that God would do through you, but they've never, not, not yet been fulfilled. Perhaps God has given you a revelation or put things in your heart that you've hidden away and almost forgotten about. Know this, that God has not forgotten about them. If he's spoken them, they will be fulfilled. We don't know what Paul did with this time for those 14 years. Sat making tents, speaking in tongues to himself probably. I'm sure he set his mind to good use. Who knows, he might even have established a church in Tarsus that we know nothing about. Whatever he did, he didn't give up hope and was ready when God said go. And we too must be ready when God opens that door to our destiny, however long it takes, be ready to go. So in this dramatic story of the conversion of Paul, we see God's unique calling of him. But we can also see that in the same way, God has called each one of us, given us a destiny to fulfill. And if you don't know what that is, ask someone to pray with you for revelation. If you're feeling frustrated that it hasn't happened yet, ask someone to pray for you for patience and for the opportunity to open up. And if you know it's time to re-engage with God in order to be transformed, ask someone to pray for you as you do so. There'll be a prayer team at the back. 
if any of those things are things that you want prayer into. So as we conclude, let's pray. And let's remind ourselves during this week that if Paul can take, if God can take a Paul who seems to be completely opposed, then even the people that we're talking to on a day-to-day basis can be turned around by the power of God. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for all that he has, has, all the ways that you've used him to shape our understanding of truth and to shape what the church has become. And we give you praise for him. And I ask, Lord God, that even amongst us, you might raise up those with a calling to make a difference in our world and in the church. Amen.